Okay. Well, anyway, so if you're here visiting, and I know we have some first-time visitors, Sherman and Shay, I just met them, they're here the first time. So again, I'm not the minister, uh, so uh, please come back next week, okay? Uh, but, but we're going to try to, we'll try to, to, to rock and roll through this. Uh, usually when I do a class, usually I'm doing classes or, or, or groups, um, oftentimes I'll, I'll throw out some questions and quiz questions kind of warm us up a bit. And then hopefully in a minute we're going to look into some scripture and look at some really serious, significant questions, okay? But I'm going to give you three questions, all right? And I'm going to give you all three, all together. And if you know the answer, don't yell out, okay? Because I want, I want everybody to hear all three, and then we'll come back to them, okay? All right. Uh, now, this, this is going to be graded, so concentrate, okay? First question. What's the capital of New York? What's the capital of New York? Okay. Um, second question. What's the dog's name in The Wizard of Oz? What's the dog's name in The Wizard of Oz? Okay. Third question. How many bones are there in the human body? Okay, there's your three questions. Cap of New York, what's the dog's name in The Wizard of Oz? How many bones in the human body? Okay. All right, first question. Cap of New York. Albany. Albany. Okay, good. What's the dog's name in the movie? Toto. Toto, all right. So you young kids that were here, you've watched that movie several times, you're able to answer a question. I see a guy there, he got it, right? Okay. All right. How many bones in the human body? Say again? 206. Yeah, that's what I have, 206. Okay. All right, good job. You got them all. Hopefully you're a little warmed up. In a minute, we're going to get into some more, we're going to talk hopefully about some significant questions, okay? So turn in your Bible, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 9, the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, and I'm going to be starting in verse 18. Luke 9, 18. I'm reading out of the NIV. If you have a different version, yours might read slightly different, but the meaning's the same. So Luke, chapter 9, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Verse 20, Jesus says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And that's the question for me, for you sitting here. Who do you say Jesus is? That's a significant question, isn't it? Why is it? Why is that a significant question? Who do you say Jesus is? I mean, not the Sunday school answer. I mean, really, in your, in your life, who do you really say Jesus is? Because how I answer that question, how you answer that question, that's going to have a huge effect on what I do with Jesus, right? What am I going to do with that? It's a serious, significant question. And then we're going back to the text. At this, the latter part of verse 20... He throws out that question, and Peter answered. Okay? No surprise, right? Peter tends to speak up. Peter answers, and he answers the question. He says, the Christ of God. Jesus said, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Christ of God. Verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And then he said to them, 
Listen to what Jesus says. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus asked the question. Peter acknowledges who he is. He is the Christ. And then Jesus lays out, okay, that's true. And here's what's going to happen. Here's the game plan. I must suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders. I must be killed and raised on the third day. He lays it out plainly. Okay, we're going to come back to Luke 9, but flip over to Mark chapter 8 real quick. We're going to look at Mark's account in Mark chapter 8, and we're going to pick up in uh, verse 31. And part of the reason I'm doing this is, you know, the four Gospels, they, they share the same stories, but the different writers sometimes, their slant or the, or the way they say it's a little different, and some of the Gospels will include something that the other one didn't. And we're going to look at, at, at Mark's account, and you'll see he adds something that Luke did not mention. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Well, if you look above it, if you look up in verse 27, you see that G, the same account, Jesus said, who do the people say I am? And then he, he asks them that question again, and Peter answers, you're the Christ. Okay? Then pick up in verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Verse 32. He spoke plainly about this. He spoke plainly about this. And you notice when he was telling them what was happening, he didn't say this may happen, this it's probably going to happen. He said, this must happen. He made it very clear. It must happen. And verse 32, he spoke plainly about this, and there's Peter again. Now, Peter had just declared that he's the Christ. In verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, picture that. You've you got to love Peter. I mean, Peter just... He's going to say what's on his mind. You know, remember in the storm, he's the guy getting out of the boat. Jesus asked this very significant question. Peter just said, you're the Christ of God. Okay. And now Jesus lays out what's going to happen, what must happen, and Peter begins to re- rebuke Jesus. Okay. Rebuke, that's a biblical word. What, is, what does rebuke mean? If you root, what is a rebuke? Okay. Yeah. Basically, a rebuke is really just an expression of strong disapproval. It's sort of a correction with a little horsepower, a, a correction with a kick in the pants, so to speak. A real strong expression of disapproval. Now, what in the world? I mean, I don't know what Peter was thinking, but look in, in, in the account. It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, I don't think you have to be a Bible scholar to be thinking, this, I don't think this is going to go very well. You're thinking about rebuking the Christ. Jesus doesn't need to be taught, he doesn't need to be corrected, and he certainly doesn't need to be rebuked, right? But here's Peter, he's going to rebuke. Why in the world would he even attempt this? What is he thinking about? What strong disapproval is he wanting to express? And I think we see from other scriptures and other things that are going on, 
that Peter's mindset, his concept of the Christ, the Messiah, that wasn't fitting with Jesus talking about being suffered, rejected, being killed. Peter said, no, no, that, that, that can't be right. Because they and most of the people at the time, I think, were thinking of the Christ as someone who's going to lead them in this worldly kingdom and maybe help them get out from the, under Rome's thumb and maybe help Israel get back to a, a place of prominence on the stage. He was thinking very worldly. And Jesus, of course, is talking about a spiritual and eternal kingdom. And, but in Peter's mind, what Jesus was saying wasn't fitting. But I like the way Mark says it. He says he began to rebuke him. Because that didn't go very far. Look, look at the text. He says, Peter pulled him aside, began to rebuke him. Verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Okay? He didn't begin to rebuke Peter. He rebuked Peter. Okay? What does he say? He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter's mindset was very worldly, very focused. He, he didn't have the, the spiritual picture. And was Jesus actually calling Peter Satan? I don't think so. He was saying the way Peter was thinking was not of God, that's of Satan. You're thinking very worldly, very physical. I'm talking about a spiritual, eternal kingdom. So he rebukes Peter, and he says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Okay, now, go down to the next verse, 34. So again, in Mark's account, just like in, in, in Luke, Jesus acknowledges he is the Christ. He tells them how it's going to be. He says, this must happen. And it did, didn't it? And we talked about it in communion, last week, Resurrection Sunday. And you look in the Bible, if you're familiar, if you read 1 Corinthians at all, the Apostle Paul writing in Corinthians, I think it's in the first chapter, he talks about and he says, listen, we preach Christ and Him crucified. That's what we preach, Christ and Him crucified. Because that, that had to happen, just as Jesus said, it must happen. And then you get to the end of that letter in chapter 15, and he's getting to sum up the letter, and now he's talking about resurrection. And this is so important that it must have to happen, and just like we talked about in, in the communion. In chapter 15 in Corinthians, Paul writes, listen, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's how significant it is. It's critical. And Jesus said it must happen, and it did happen. And that's important, and he lays that out for them. Okay, back to the text. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. Okay. You see, Jesus, he just laid out and said, here's how it's going to go as far as me being the Messiah, going to suffer going to be rejected, I must be killed and raised on the third day. That's how that goes. And now he looks at the crowd and he says, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, who's included in anyone? Everyone, right? 
me, you, everybody. He's saying, listen, if anybody wants to come after me, if anybody wants to be a Christ follower, he says what? He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I don't know about you, but man, that, that's pretty serious. That's kind of heavy. You read that. And, and you look at what he's saying. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Now, I don't know about you, but denying myself is not my uh, uh, normal default setting. Okay? It just isn't. You know, I get so caught up in me and what I want, and, and I am amazed at just how self-absorbed I get. And this lesson was very, very difficult for me because I'm seeing that so much. And I came across this verse, and it's like sort of a slap in the face. Um, And he says, we must deny himself. What does he mean there? Does he mean that if there's anything nice or pleasant or or joyful, you know, you you got to deny that, deny yourself, you can't have anything good? I don't think he's talking about that. Did Jesus deny himself? Yeah. We see it all through the scriptures, right? The Bible says that Jesus, while he walked on this earth, was tempted in every way, just as you and I. But what follows after that? He was tempted in every way as you and I, but he was without sin. His whole walk on this earth, Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. He always yielded himself to the Father's will. So Jesus was constantly denying himself. And if you think about what incident do we have recorded in the scripture that I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I think is one of the prominent things where we see Jesus denying himself. I'll give you a hint. It's in a garden, okay? Does that help? Yeah. This idea of, you know, he must be suffered, he must be crucified. You remember in the Gospels, the time is coming, Jesus is soon to be arrested. The cross is looming, the crucifixion is, is coming. And he's in there praying, and part of his prayer is, Father, if there's any way, any way this cup can be taken from me. Yeah. That was what Jesus was wanting. That was his desire in that moment. If there's any way we can do this, let this cup pass from me. But then immediately, right on the the heels of that, what does he say? But not my will, but your will be done. And to me, it seems like, I think that's what God's talking about. That's denying ourselves in a nutshell. Because often my will's here and I see God's will's here. You know, what am I going to do with that? Is my attitude going to be, hey, God, I I want your will, not mine. Denying ourselves. Jesus did it did it perfectly. And then he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And he doesn't leave it there. He says, and take up his cross. What does that mean? Because he's saying, if anybody's going to follow, you've got to deny yourself and you've got to take up your cross. Think about that. What does that mean, take up your cross? The whole time we talked about last week, the resurrection, Jesus was crucified on a cross. I've shared this probably numerous times. When, when I was younger, I just thought the crucifixion and the cross was a special religious thing they did to Jesus. But it's not. 
The Romans used that as a way to execute condemned prisoners. It was a heinous way of putting somebody to death. Okay? And what they would normally do was the condemned person would be beaten, usually severely, and according to history, some people didn't survive the beating. The guards got so carried away, and they had devised ways to make it so brutal. Uh, but the person would be beaten, and then adding insult to injury, they would have to march to where they were actually going to be crucified, and they would be made to carry part of the cross. So you're severely beaten, and you're carrying a cross. So those people, when they hear that, if you're carrying your cross, somebody's dying. And if you're carrying the cross, it's you. Because you're on the way to die. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. I need to deny myself and take up my cross and die to myself. And then come follow him. And you think about that, and it's amazingly challenging you know, but that's what Jesus said. He laid out what he was going to do, and he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Okay, flip back to Luke 9 real quick, if you would. Back to Luke 9, where we were. And we'll pick up in Luke 9 in verse 23. And just like Mark's account had a little bit of information that Luke didn't cover, he talked about Peter rebuking Jesus, uh, Luke's account adds a little bit of information. In the NIV, it's one word, but I think it's very significant. Verse 23, Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Very slight difference in the way Luke said it, that Mark did. Did you pick up what the difference was? I see somebody nodding. What's the difference? Yeah. Luke's account says, take up your cross daily. Why do you think God had Luke put that in there? Why does he say, take up your cross daily? What do you think? Seems like, because it's an everyday decision, isn't it? I got to decide every day Am I going to get up and deny myself, die to myself, and take up my cross, or am I going to just focus on me and live for me? Okay. In, in Daryl's class this morning, he was sharing the idea of sometimes in reality in life we get rocking along, and sometimes, you know, have you seen those bumper stickers? I see everyone on the back coat says, life is good. You ever see that? Sometimes you hit that, don't you? You get in a spot and life's just kind of good. Things are going well. Everything's all right. The work, no major illnesses. Life's just kind of good. And we kind of cruise, don't we? We go on autopilot. And, and Daryl was talking about all of a sudden we don't look to God as much. We're not crying out to God. We're kind of just cruising. Okay? We're kind of cruising. And, and we're going along and... And, but Jesus says, listen, we've got to make that decision every day. And if I'm not making that decision, I've really made the decision, right? I'm just going to kind of go on my own steam. Uh, a very challenging thing Jesus says to us. And here's another maybe important question. Is it possible that you and I 
attempt to be Christ followers and not really doing it the way Jesus calls us to? Is that possible? Do we try to do that? I know I do. And I think I get so caught up in myself and I do church and I try to be kind of a nice person and neaten up my life a little bit. But that isn't what Jesus calls us to. He wants me to deny myself, take up my cross, and really follow him. Another question, uh, particularly even when we've been in the church a long time, we can kind of go into autopilot and, and we need to ask our question, you know, that question again that Jesus said, who do you say I am? You know, am I really convinced that he's Christ the Lord? Is that how I go about my life? And sometimes what I think I've drifted into is uh, I can almost start looking at, at God as a consultant. You know, I'm kind of, I'm running my life, and if some things happen and some tragedies and problems, you know, 911, and I'm, I'm going to cry out to God as a consultant. But then I'm really running my life. And I think that it's very easy to get into that. And I know I, I feel like much of my life, that's what I've really done. And I forget about thinking that I need to make that decision every day. Am I going to live? Is it going to be about me? Or am I going to die to myself and follow Christ? And, and there may be different reasons why we get into that, of why we kind of just do church and try to be a nice person versus really denying ourselves and taking up our cross. That may be one of them. But I think, you know, just like Peter resisted what Jesus said must happen about him and suffering and dying, I think sometimes if we're really honest, we resist what Jesus says about us following him. Well, that, you know, that's a little harsh. That's, you know, that's for maybe the super elite Christians, you know, the Navy SEALs of Christianity. Maybe those people can do that. But, you know, I'll go to church and I'll try to, you know, straighten up a bit, but to die to myself, man, that, that's, a, that's a big deal. And maybe we step back from that. I know I do more than I realize. And I think there's something else that plays into this. And we're going to look in um, Ephesians. And Ephesians will be the last scriptures we look at, just a couple in Ephesians. So if you want to turn over to the Ephesian letter, I think Paul writing to these Christians in, in, in Ephesus, uh, he, he gets it. Uh, and in Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll start verse 1 and 2. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. And the scripture says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There it sounds like Paul is directing these Christians in Ephesus to do what Jesus said. To live a life of love. Because look, look how he said it. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice. He's saying that's how we're supposed to live our life. That offering up, that sacrifice, just like Jesus did for us. And I think he's really saying just exactly what Jesus said if we're going to be Christ followers. But in this text... 
There's a couple of words, a phrase in verse 1 that I think is very important. He says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Dearly loved children. And I think that is sometimes what I drift away from. This idea that to do that, and Paul is saying to do that, you need to come from the position of you're not just loved by God, you're dearly loved by God. And I think the more we grasp that, and my wife knows better than anybody, you know, Paul, uh, apparently, according to the book of Acts, was in Ephesus for three years. He was there a while, and he's, he's working with this, these Christians, so they have an opportunity, uh, uh, hopefully, to really get it. But he, he wants them to understand they're dearly loved. And I've been in the church a long time, and I confess, I still fight that battle to really believe I'm dearly loved by God. Some days I really feel it, and then other days, it's like, I don't know. And, and he's saying, look, if we're going to live this way, we've got to realize we're dearly loved by God. And that's very significant, so much so, the last scripture we're going to look at is, is still in Ephesians. Go back to Ephesians chapter 3. So Paul gives them this directive, look, be imitators of Christ. Live a life of love, just the way he loved us. And he says, do it as dearly loved children. And that's very significant. And if you go to Acts chapter 3, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 3, there's a lot of prayers throughout the letter of Ephesians. And I'm going to pick up in verse 16. Ephesians 3, verse 16. Now remember, Paul is going to, he's about to leave. He's, he's sending this letter. He's, he's giving them this letter. And he, he listen to his prayer. He says, I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, now listen to the next phrase, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. I think Paul's praying that for them, that they can really get it, to really get, you know. And I hear in church a lot, God loves you, God loves me. But that's like, am I really getting that? And we talked about it, and I think somebody made a comment of, of the difference in the class about having it up here and having it here, you know, really moving into, into my heart, that God really loves me. And, and, and I... I need to pray more about this because Paul was praying that, that they would have the power to get it. Almost that we need God's power and help to really grasp the depth of the love that God has for us. That we really are dearly loved children. And that makes a huge difference. If I'm getting that and grasping it, now when I go back to the question of am I going to deny myself and take up my cross? I think if I'm convinced that God really loves me and He wants what's best for me, He wants me in eternity with Him forever, He really wants what's best for me, why am I so caught up in, well, but this is what I want. I don't know about that. And I think God is saying maybe the more we get that 
And the more that I remember he's Christ the Lord, he's not my heavenly consultant from time to time, he's Christ the Lord. And he really loves me. He died for us. And God is saying, I, I, I pray that you'll have the power to really grasp that. So I want us to think about as we, as we wind up here and wrap up, you know, be asking yourself, and I think it's a continual question because sometimes we drift away from things. Who do you say Jesus is? Really, who do you say Jesus is? And are we really convinced, am I really convinced that I am dearly loved by God? Am I really convinced of that? And I'm thinking the more we do that, the more we get that, I think we're going to be much more ready, willing, and able to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. So I encourage you, and I just want to close with a prayer here, and then we'll uh, have a song of invitation in a minute. And you can, if you have any prayer requests, something you want to bring before the body, we invite you to do that. Let's go ahead and close in a prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for this day. And Father, we just pray that you'll help us, that we'll know and always remember that you're Christ and you're the Lord. And you call us, Father, to deny ourselves and take up our cross. But Father, please help us know that we are dearly loved. And Father, the more we grasp that, Father, I think the more we will be ready to surrender our will to yours. And Father, to live like you call us to live. Thank you so much, Father, that you love us and you died for us. And Father, as always, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen.